Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Thank you, Kirsten. I appreciated that introduction. It's such an incredible pleasure to be here tonight, and I'm truly honored by the turnout. Thank you all for coming. Kirsten told me everyone is dying to know how it's possible for a woman to manage multiple husbands at once. <laughs> I kind of thought when I chose this topic for my dissertation all those years ago that it might attract some interest from people both in and outside of anthropology. So I was therefore not hugely surprised at the very first conference I ever presented at to see the room fill to capacity and beyond, which I thought was all about my topic. It was standing room only, and despite being confident that my topic was an interesting one, I grew more and more nervous as I looked around at all the people. My mouth was as dry as could be, and as I walked to the front of the room to take my place at the table, at the front, I thought I might black out. Um, I sat down and took really very little notice of the woman sitting beside me, who turned out, upon further inspection, to be absolutely amazing to look at just about as attractive can be. And she went on to stand up and deliver a riveting talk on polyamory in America, where people are technically married to one spouse, but where both spouses routinely consort with multiple regular partners from outside the marriage. This is a small subpopulation of the United States, evidently. And as she finished her talk, I gathered my wits and my papers, and I went to the podium to queue up my slides. And when I eventually looked up from what I was doing up there, I realized there were only three people left in the room to learn about polyandry. <laughs> oh, dear. So that was a little bit of a disappointment. But um, NYU Abu Dhabi has not disappointed. And I thank you again for coming out tonight. In fact, I'm here on this campus being allowed to explore with you in this community two of my main passions in life, polyandry and pit latrines. And I feel very lucky. So yes, pit latrines. <laughs> you see, I went to Nepal all those years ago on my journey to become what I had imagined to be a purely scholarly and academic career in anthropology. I'd gone to the northwestern Nepalese Himalaya to live with a group of people who were known for the very unusual marriage system of polyandry, which I'm going to tell you about tonight. But as Kirsten alluded to, I ended up diverging from that purely scholarly course rather substantially and working seriously in the world of development. Because I saw firsthand what life was like for the people that I was living with there, who were living without access to modern medical care, electricity, running water, plumbing, and that sort of thing. And as a human being, I didn't feel comfortable compartmentalizing those challenges as not my own. And I saw that the international de development interventions in the area suffered from a serious lack of forethought cultural nu nuance, and decent evidence-based practice. As a woman and eventually as a mother, I came to understand the truly overwhelming challenge of staying healthy and raising healthy children when your water, sanitation, and hygiene facilities are underdeveloped or absent. And because I was frequently sick myself while I was living there with one gastrointestinal disorder or another, I grew to yearn for a decent bathroom, really any bathroom. 
And that's when my passion for pit latrines began. But that's the subject of my J-term class that um, Kirsten is helping me with, not tonight. Um, so I want to dwell on that further, but I wanted to let you know that's the other reason that I'm here. And I'd be happy to take questions on that topic later. So this map shows where I'll be talking about tonight. So this is the high Himalayan district of, um, I'm not sure, this, can you see it? Up here in this corner of the country is the high Himalayan district of Nepal where about, uh, where I worked, Homeland District, where about 40,000 people live. These are agropastoralists, which is a subsistence system characterized by a mix of agriculture along with transhumance pastoralism. And people here um, make their living moving sizable herds of animals and some family members from pasture to pasture. In the case of these people, these animals were yaks, horses, and yak-cow hybrids called zopa. Um, in addition to farming and agriculture, people also engage in significant long-distance pedestrian travel in this culture on trading trips spanning the, from the Tibetan plateau to the north to the middle hills of Nepal to the south. Nepal was at that time in the mid-90s ruled by the royal family in a parliamentary democracy. Homla itself is an interesting district. It's similar to the other mountain districts all along the northern edge of Nepal in that its population is split between Nepali-speaking, caste-observing Hindu people to the south and ethnic Tibetan Buddhists to the north. And these Tibetan-speaking people are the remnants of the southern edge of the former Tibetan Buddhist diaspora who happened to be caught within the border, the northern border of Nepal, when it was unified as a kingdom in 1768. So most of us have a template in our minds of what's normal or ideal in terms of marriage and family. But the reality is that most people create something a little or a lot different from any one template. I've been studying marriage and family systems cross-culturally now for 20 years, and I came at this topic from the context of my own family, which was pretty expandable and inclusive. My parents divorced and remarried, had more biological children in their second marriages, and adopted others from a different country. So my idea of family from a pretty early age was flexible. As a teenager and young adult, my ideas about marriage, by contrast, were pretty conventional. I grew up in a small farming town in the state of New Hampshire in the uh, northeastern part of the United States. And like anyone, I learned from what I saw around me. At the, and at that time, what I learned was that what my culture viewed as right and proper was a marriage between one man and one woman. I also learned that deviating from that template was associated with a range of negative values, a broken family, a failed marriage. And it's hard not to internalize these ideas and values. So as a young person, it didn't ever occur to me to ask this question. If you didn't have to worry about what your society or culture defined as ideal, what would your ideal look like? So while the question didn't occur to me as a youngster, I started to consider that topic very carefully once I got into the anthropological study of marriage. To complete the PhD in anthropology, I needed to choose a society where I would go live um, learn the language, and, and come to know the way of life of the people there. 
Um, fast forward to June of 1995, and I found myself walking up this valley. This is the main valley of Humla District, and the river at the bottom of the valley that you can see there is the Karnali River, one of the tributaries of the sacred river, the Ganges. So I walked up the valley together with 11 porters, <laughs> carrying the embarrassing amount of stuff that I thought I was going to need to make it through a year that I'd spend there. Um, in fact, they did need a lot of that stuff because the area is chronically food insecure, and I didn't want to put too much of a burden on the local people for um, asking, by asking them to feed my partner and me. So as I mentioned before, this is a valley in northwestern Nepal, and it's three weeks' walk from the nearest road. So um, at the time that I went to live there, it was as I described. There was no road, there was no electricity, no plumbing, no phones, or modern and modern healthcare were at that time unutilized by these people. To get there, I flew into a gravel airstrip, and then I walked for two full days to get to the village where I finally ended up. And here it is, a scene now beloved to me, really a second home. There were many choices of places to stay in in which village, and as I told my students in class the other day, I chose this one because it had a hot spring, so I knew I could have a warm bath in the river. <laughs> and that's where I asked those three, 11 very kind and hardworking boarders to put my things down, and I started my new life. I was about to spend over a year studying the unusual marriage system that's common here. So in this society, there's no one good and proper way to arrange your intimate life with your spouse, nor how you provide for your household and your children. In this group, most, at least at that time, most married people started their married lives polyandrously, meaning that the women had more than one husband at a time. And the day that I arrived, I arranged to rent a tiny room from a woman who had eventually become my close friend. She was the same age at, as I was at that time, 26, and she had at that time five husbands and three children. In this particular society, polyandry is fraternal, which means that the, her husbands were each other's brothers, so she had married a set of brothers. So in contrast with her, I was unmarried at that time. I had no children, and I appeared to spend most of my time sitting around writing in a notebook. This was deeply concerning to my new friends. <laughs> it tried hard to make me see the gross errors I was making as a woman, and they gave me hours of advice about how to contend with the problems they anticipated in my future since I had waited until the advanced age of 26 to marry and begin having children. So as I alluded to before, my fiancé lived with me for part of the time. And I have to say that in comparison with their concerns for me, community concerns for him and his welfare were even more grave <laughs> for having chosen so poorly among women and winding up with an idle woman who appeared to thrive on gossiping about husbands. <laughs> he therefore had many offers to help him find a higher quality wife, one maybe from that community. On the one occasion he was observed cooking while I was sitting around writing, people offered in a panic to run for a doctor because they could not imagine what was happening, why I would permit a man to cook for me unless I was gravely ill. 
So I had a lot of adventures living there and with those people, and they continue to be my friends and like family to me to this day. But I have to say that the most mind-expanding of all of the adventures that I had, of all the experiences I went through with this community, was the experience of coming to understand the incredible flexibility that the people have in their marriage system there. So anthropologists have been interested in marriage for a very long time. And there really aren't a lot of cultural universals. Um, but one thing that nearly all cultures do is put into practice some kind of system of regulating the rights and obligations of spouses and relationships between parents and children and between spouses and in-laws. And these systems are, as a whole, generally referred to as marriage. So for all these years that we've been trying to define the institution in a way that captures the, the variability um, across cultures, um, we've, we've struggled. And there are some good reasons for that. So uh, in addition to monogamy, uh, many societies, oh, Sorry, I just need to start a, a visual here. In addition to monogamy, many societies permit polygamy in one of two forms. Polygamy means simply multiple spouses. And to be more specific, um, polygyny refers to having multiple wives. So um, typically, people use polygamy to refer to what is actually polygyny. And um, polyandry refers to multiple husbands. So if you look across all human societies, you'd find that the majority of them um, permit or encourage polygyny. So in comparison, we, few, we see relatively few places. Oops, sorry, this is hastening through the um, images. We see relatively few places with polyandry humla being one of them. But there are lots and lots of other variations which make defining marriage challenging. And as you have seen behind me up there on the slide, um, we have some of those um, variations there for you. So, so many societies have same-sex marriages for a variety of reasons. Um, we have societies where a man marries his deceased brother's wife, which is the practice of the leveret. And now I'll just get this going again. Oops. Not that. And also where a man marries his deceased wife's sister, which is referred to as the sororate, which I believe is going to appear next. Yes, so the sororate. We also see some societies in which something referred to as ghost marriage is practiced. And this is where a woman marries a man who has actually already died, but with his brother standing in for him, thereby continuing the line of descent for that brother who died. Sometimes the, Mary, Mary, the woman marries a woman, another woman, in this case, who is a stand-in for the spirit husband. So what anthropologists who study marriage all come to realize is that among humans, there are many different forms of marriage that not only work, but which allow people to thrive and to prosper. And I knew about all of this variation, of course, before I went to live with the community that I'm describing to you tonight. But it actually took moving there before I became um, able to appreciate what it might feel like to grow up in a society that had a lot of flexibility 
around the definition of marriage, and more specifically in concepts addressing what makes for a good and proper marriage and family. So, polyandry is unusual across uh, human species or human societies, and actually, it's unusual across all of the mammals. As I've said, it's when a woman is married at one time to a group of men. In the case of this community, as I mentioned before, these men or co-husbands are each other's brothers. So as in the case of my closest friend, Kartrung, uh, a woman typically marries um, a man and all of his brothers just kind of come along as part of the deal. Uh, this is referred to as fraternal polyandry, as I think I mentioned before. So as you can imagine, this poses something of a management task for the wife who has to juggle the sexual and emotional needs of all of her husbands while running her household and attending to the demands of her parents-in-law. And this is not a task that all women are suited to. Polyandry is so rare among humans that it's generated a lot of curiosity and a range of explanations, some plausible, others insufficient. As for me, I was trained as a human evolutionary ecologist in grad school which is a field within anthropology that draws substantially from the non-human mating systems literature. And I was interested in understanding the reproductive and evolutionary consequences to polyandry and its alternatives in this Himalayan system. So my work took an evolutionary approach, but um, supplemented it with a family systems analysis framework which focuses on the elements of the main types of family systems that organize households within human societies, those household compositions, how they phase over time, and their inheritance patterns. So excuse me for a moment while I just um, bond with the social scientists in the room with an interest in family systems. Um, I just wanted to point out that it might be interesting for you to know that the homely polyandrous family system mixes elements of both a hiving off stem family system and a joint family system. The inheritance system is de jure equal among sons, but de facto it's a male primogenitor. I can return in the Q&A part of our evening together tonight to a more detailed discussion of the logic of inheritance in this system and how it impacts marital decisions, as well as to a description of the reproductive outcomes associated with the system for different kinds of marital trajectories um, for those who are interested. So um, remember that, might return to that later. So among the people who live in Humla, there is, as you've by now surmised, a very flexible set of ideas about what constitutes a good and proper marriage. Along with this flexibility, there is a remarkable lack of conflict over the issue of the definition of marriage. One of the things about the community that I grew to love is their open-mindedness about the fact that different personalities are suited to different household and marital arrangements. The norm in the community has traditionally been for a woman to marry a group of brothers, not her own brothers, of course, but to marry a set of brothers from another lineage, one that is carefully selected for her by her male relatives according to the degree of relatedness between the lineages and astrological and other forms of input by local monks, lamas, and religious specialists at the village monastery. So one very advantageous result of the polyandrous system when it's practiced across generations is that the estate remains intact because land, 
herds, and other assets in families are passed without division from fathers, sets of fathers, to sets of sons. So in the picture behind me, you can see uh, a village scene in a very arid um, ecosystem. And this is in the district of Mustang. Um, this is on the uh, north-facing slope of the Himalaya. And um, so you can see some um, geographical and ecological features of the landscape here. Or they're a little bit different from Humla, but they share some things in common. So if a, a set of sons all marries the same woman, there's no need to divide the estate. And this can be very beneficial in a place where it is either very steep, like in Humla, or very arid, like here in Mustang, where polyandry was also traditionally practiced. And these two kinds of ecological conditions characterize um, virtually every uh, community where polyandry contemporarily occurs. They're either very, very steep, limiting arable land, or very, very arid. Um, all of them are at uh, 10,000 feet or higher. The average elevation on the Tibetan plateau is 15,000 feet, just to give you a reference point. It also means that the aggregate fertility rate of the group is low because some women simply never marry. This happens because one woman can marry a bunch of men. And because the sex ratio of these communities is at parity, which means there is roughly equal numbers of males and females in the population, some women simply never enter into marriage at all, and non-marital fertility is close to zero. Unmarried women remain at home, and some perform religious duties at the village monastery, but I can talk a little bit more if people are interested in what their roles are later in the Q&A as well. So in this family photo, there are three husbands and one wife. One husband is absent from the photo. This family started their marriage polyandrously, and they remained so for most of their lives. Like the other polyandrous families in the village, the husbands divided their time among the main economic activities in the region. I mentioned them before. So this is a tripartite economy where people split their time in their economic activity between trading, agriculture, and herding of, of as I said, yaks, horses, hybrids, and small stock. Because the co-husbands are busy like that, it means they rarely are all home at the same time. <laughs> One might be up in the high elevation pastures for months, while another is away on an extended trading trip onto the Tibetan plateau, that sort of thing. So this makes the management of them and their various demands and their sexual needs a little bit easier on their wife. Polyandrous wives do have multiple husbands provisioning their households. And in the traditional economy, this makes their lives much easier than among monogamous women and has knock-on effects on the number of their children that survive and some other of their health outcomes. The flip side of the coin is that polyandrous wives need to be adept at managing their husbands. Jealousy is discouraged in the group, but a polyandrous wife still needs to be sensitive and diplomatic about the desires and needs of her husbands. So, not all homely women want or are suited to this life, and that's okay here. In this family, there were actually multiple brothers who could have shared a wife, but they decided not to. And they um, decided to each marry separately with their own wife monogamously and set up their own households independently. 
This put a heavier economic burden on them because it meant that their estate was, from the get-go, right out of the gate, their estate was divided, and they didn't have the help of their brothers within their household to manage herding, trade, and agriculture. So they basically had one husband trying to be sufficient across each of those economic spheres. Eventually, the first family you saw, the polyandrous one, transitioned after almost 20 years into separate monogamous households. This happened as the economic, social, and emotional needs of the members of the household changed, um, which has a lot to do with the aging of the brother set as well as the children produced by it. So a wonderful thing about this society, at least in my estimation, is that people here recognize and are, in fact, very candid about how people's personalities suit them to different interpersonal and, indeed, marital arrangements. And they recognize that this can change over time, especially given the relatively long lives they enjoy today. So I wanted to make sure to point out that in addition to polyandry and monogamy, polygyny is also observed to occur in some circumstances in this community. And in rare cases in the region, polygynandry, where there are multiple husbands and multiple wives all living together in one household, is also known. So in Homla, there is no conflict about how to define marriage. Here, it's a flexible institution that permits people to begin in one type of marriage and transition, or not, into another as time passes and needs change. You might be wondering what happens to children in such a flexible system, and that's a very good question. Um, children generally remain with their mothers, but they routinely spend time in different households um, in the village, not only the household of their parents, but also the households of their aunts, um, their uncles, if their uh, fathers haven't married together, and so on. So fathers and fathers' brothers are extremely important in the lives of children no matter what the household or a marital arrangement, and they actively participate in raising children. Here is my adoptive little brother from Humla, a man named Angjuk Lama, when he used to live with me in Montana, learning this state pastime, which is fly fishing for trout. <laughs> um, and he made a video of one of my previous research assistants, Angmu, describing how she feels about polyandry. So we can hear from Angmu now. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of marriages, I know. <laughs> oh dear, it's been over 20 years since I first lived in Humla and learned about the marriage and family system practice there. I've returned many times and correspond now almost daily with my friends and the family that adopted me there, mainly by Facebook and Instagram. 
life, is there, life has changed in many regards. Since 1999, the NGO that I co-founded that Kirsten mentioned in the, in the introduction has worked with local people to bring improvements in the health and education situation in the villages, focusing, as I said, in part on one of my um, um, passions, which is the wash sector, um, uh, the water sanitation and hygiene sector, which is what our uh, day-term course is about here. Other development organizations have brought changes as well. And in addition to those, the country suffered a civil war in the last decade. That war caused Nepali people to critically evaluate their traditional cultures, including the culture of polyandry. But despite the many changes brought by the passage of time, by development organizations and the war, polyandry persists. In 2015, I resurveyed the households in my study area, and still near, nearly 30% of marriages were currently polyandrous or began polyandrously at that time, despite predictions in as far back as 1995 that the marriage system was on the brink, on the threshold of dying out. So the time for a reevaluation re is approaching, and I'm currently developing a project that will complete a retrospective analysis of uh, fertility and child survival outcomes by type of marriage system to be undertaken hopefully in 2019 for a 25-year retrospective conducted in the same villages and among the same families I first met in 1995. So over these years, the villages have not been without conflict. But one thing that they don't have conflict over still today is the definition of marriage. Why don't they have conflict over this? In large part, I would argue, because of the flexibility inherent in the system, which is based on the recognition of how different people and different personalities find happiness and prosperity in all sorts of different household and marital arrangements. I'm not suggesting that we all begin marrying polyandrously. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about your brothers or your husband's brothers, but I'm imagining that fraternal polyandry might not be your first choice. I mean, I like my husband's brothers, but I don't like them that much. Um, <laughs> I would like to close by repeating the question from the beginning of my remarks. What marriage and family arrangement would you choose if you weren't given a template to follow, and why? Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.